I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Deuteronomy chapters 21 through 23. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In chapter 21, Moses is still re-giving the law, and they're getting ready to enter into the Canaan land. And in chapter 21, we find a new addition to the law, Another heifer, but this time it's for an unsolved murder. Verse 1. If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke, The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And an atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord." Now, we saw a ritual involving a red heifer back in Numbers chapter 19. That was for the ceremonial cleansing of those who had touched dead bodies. This is a heifer, but not necessarily red. When a slain body is discovered, the elders of the city closest to the location of the body are obligated to bring a specially qualified heifer to the site and slay it there with the priest by breaking her neck and offering a prayer that the blood of the slain one be not charged to the innocent people of Israel. In verses 10 through 14, we find an interesting way to land a new wife. Verse 10, When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally, because you have humbled her. Now here's an interesting law. She's a prisoner of war, and now you want to marry her. According to the provision of this law, She may be taken as a wife by the Hebrew captor after she's given a full month to mourn the loss of her family. She shaves her head and pairs her nails to indicate a new life as a Hebrew wife. Notice the disposition of this woman if the Hebrew husband tires of her. Before marriage as a slave, she could have been sold. 
After marriage, however, she must be given her freedom to go wherever she pleases. But, of course, she has no family to which she may return. And then in verses 15 through 17, the disenfranchised elder son, he catches a break. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. Now Jacob, by the way, did show partiality toward the firstborn son of Rachel, who was Joseph, who was actually the eleventh of twelve sons born to Jacob. This law literally protects the rights of the firstborn no matter how much you hated his mom. Ironically, had Abraham been subject to this law, he could not have blessed Isaac over Ishmael with the rights of the firstborn. Here we see a definition of firstborn rights as a double portion of all that he has. In verses 18 to 21, we find some child-parent regulations in the law. Verse 18, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who when they have chastened him, will not heed them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear." So the kid says, Mom, couldn't I just go to my room without supper? And his mom says, Son, where you're going, you won't be needing any supper. Yes, we're talking about the stoning to death of one's rebellious son. Now, what age son are we talking about here, do you suppose? Well, he'd have to be under age 20 because otherwise he wasn't subject to his directions from mother and dad. So that's the age of manhood in Israel, age 20. So how fed up with your son must you be to take these drastic measures? Well, I'm guessing that this punishment encouraged model behavior. Just the threat ought to do it. It's worth noting that the mandate for further investigation or other witnesses seen in Deuteronomy chapter 13, 14 and Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 4, well, that mandate's not required in this instance, It's simply the word of the parents is all that's required here. Now, in verses 22 and 23, we find a verse that, two verses, that Paul made reference to. Verse 22, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. As I mentioned, Paul used this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, when he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now here's the law, that law that Paul speaks of in verses 22 and 23. 
Jesus literally became accursed by God as he was upon the cross redeeming the world. The hanging of a body on a tree was most often done not as a means of death, but rather as a form of public humiliation after death. In the example given here, we know that the means of death for adultery is stoning. The Philistines did similarly with Saul's body by hanging him on a wall after his death. That's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Also, you may recall that the heads of the Hebrew idol worshippers were similarly placed on display before Israel in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 18. Now, as we come to chapter 22, we find some laws that people don't talk much about. Verse 1, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray, and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, and so shall you do with his garment. With any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God." If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days. When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. You shall not make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. I still find it interesting that Many Christians want to enforce on others the Mosaic laws that they like, and they want to disregard the rest. Now, here are a group of laws that are obviously culturally motivated, dealing with lost property, transvestitism, treatment of bird's nest, building codes, and forbidden pairings. For people who maintain that believers today are responsible for keeping all the Old Testament laws, they just haven't spent much time reading the Old Testament now, have they? So these laws right here govern the following, lending assistance to a fellow Hebrew with regard to his cattle in verses 1 through 4, no cross-dressing in verse 5 apparently to combat a form of sexual deviation of their day. And in verses 6 and 7, regarding a bird's nest, you take the young or the eggs, but you let the mama go free. The installation of safety rails upon one's house is dealt with in verse 8, no sowing an assortment of seeds in one's vineyard. In verse 9, the reason here isn't specified, although it's stated again in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. And then when you're plowing, no yoking an ox and an ass together, verse 10. And here's one, no mixing fabric weaves in garments, in verse 11. The reason here is not specified, although it's stated again in Leviticus 19, verse 19. And then the installation of fringes on one's garments, in verse 12. I've got more written on that in the passage on Numbers chapter 15, 
verses 37 to 41, if you'd like more detail. Then, beginning with verse 13 of chapter 22, we have Hebrew law concerning betrothal and marriage. Verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found that she was not a virgin. Then the father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man his wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him, and they shall fine him one hundred shekels of silver, and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house, so you shall put away the evil from among you. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed. Israel observed the practice of a legally binding period of betrothal, some period of time later, apparently it was typically a year, the marriage would follow after that. This betrothal doesn't compare very well to our modern practice of marriage engagement or wedding ceremony. The betrothal was a legally binding agreement between the father and the groom. The marriage itself, as I mentioned earlier, usually took place a year or so after the betrothal. From the time of betrothal, the woman was regarded by everyone as the lawful wife of the man to whom she was betrothed. We see that in Deuteronomy 28.30, and also in Judges chapter 14, verse 2, and in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. The marriage itself consisted basically of the consummation of the relationship. Now, here's the unusual part. Immediately after the first night for the newlyweds, the parents of the bride would strip the bed and hold in storage the bedsheet for future reference. 
If the new husband ever called into question the virginity of the bride prior to that night, the stained bedsheet served as evidence before the elders of the city. A false accusation by the husband resulted in a stiff fine, and he relinquished his right to ever divorce her. However, if her virginity previous to her wedding night could not be proved, she was stoned to death. Verses 22 to 30 give us a view of the emphasis placed upon a Hebrew woman's virginity as well as the standing of their women in that society. Her virginity is treated more as the property of her father or husband rather than her own. You'll notice in verses 23 and 24 that a man betrothed to a woman, well, he's called her husband at the time of betrothal. We then see some special conditions listed with regard to whom gets stoned in the case of adultery in verses 21 through 30. You'll notice that stoning was the associated punishment for adultery in these cases when the woman was the wife or betrothed of another, but not otherwise. If the woman was not committed to another man, the penalty was not death unless she entered a marriage under the pretense of being a virgin, and it was discovered not to be so. The prohibition of verse 30 is most likely a reference not to one's own mother, but rather to another of his father's wives. You'll recall that Reuben took advantage of Jacob's wife, Bilhah, back in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, for which he was later told, you shall not excel, in chapter 49 of Genesis, verses 3 and 4. That was at Jacob's death. And that brings us to chapter 23, where we find in the first two verses a word about self-mutilators, verse 1. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. A verse is used three times in these verses, the first three verses of the chapter, and that, that phrase is, shall not enter into the assembly of the Lord. That exact terminology is restricted in the Old Testament to these three verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, two of which we've already read. We don't know exactly what is meant by this phrase. Most do not feel that it is a reference to dwelling among the Israelites, although some have suggested that it means precisely that. Most agree that this phrase does indeed restrict one's participation in Israel's environment in matters such as serving in the military and religious activities. It's impossible to know for certain, but verse 1 probably speaks of intentional actions emulating the self-abusive customs of the heathen around them. Illegitimate children referenced in verse 2 would have probably been those who were born, not necessarily conceived, but born without both a father and a mother. The tenth generation's rule was probably used to emphasize that God detests this practice to the point that you'll never have an esteemed place with Israel. This wording could mean that they were permitted to live among the Israelites, but as second-class residents and not permitted to partake in some of the congregational activities. That brings us to the Ammonites and the Moabites in verses 3 through 8. Verse 3, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road, when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pether of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. 
You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Well, they should have been more helpful like the Edomites and the Egyptians. We saw that Canaanites weren't welcome to live among the Hebrews, but those outside Canaan were. However, here is an exception. Men from the Ammonites and the Moabites, as seen in verse 3, that's the exception, when it says, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. It was because of that Balaam incident back in Numbers chapters 22 to 25. This law, however, didn't forbid an Israelite man from taking a wife from among them. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew verb translated shall not enter is in verse 3. That's masculine in gender, suggesting that males only are intended to be understood here. One's heritage in Israel was determined by one's father, not one's mother. Remember Ruth? Well, she was a Moabite from whom King David was a descendant. Look at the notes on the book of Ruth if you want to know more details there. Incidentally, the Jews understood the 10th generation reference in verse 3 to be the equivalent of never. That fact is seen in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1, where this restriction was once again enforced based upon this very verse. The Edomites and Egyptians get a pass in verse 7. However, that was not always to be the case. Later, the Edomites would get considerable negative attention from the prophets. If you'd like an overview on this issue of the Edomites over the centuries, see the notes on Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21. Oh, one more thing. While the Egyptians are not listed as forbidden marriages here, the returning exiles in Ezra chapter 9 determined that Egyptian marriages were forbidden as well. You know, along the way, I've uh, made it my habit to sometimes put clever topics over a section of scripture and in this one i just got to read out loud it says "O water closet where art thou verses 9 through 14 dealing with the subject that well we've all faced verse 9 when the army goes out against your enemies then keep yourself from every wicked thing if there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp, he shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water, and when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. Also you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment, and when you sit down outside... You shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. Well, you know, when you got to go, you got to go. However, when you're fighting a war, nobody likes a messy camp. Know what I mean? So here are some verses that deal with some laws that regulate even that aspect of daily life. So we see here that you got to bury your business outside the camp. And then we have the uh, protection of escaped slaves in verses 15 and 16. It says, You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates. Where it seems best to him, you shall not oppress him. 
Now, most students of the Old Testament agree that this regulation concerns a slave who's escaped from his master in some foreign land and has sought refuge in Israel. We do know that in addition to slaves captured in battle, debt slavery and volunteer slavery existed in Israel and was protected by law. So it seems unlikely that this law applies to those two categories of slaves. We simply aren't given any detail beyond these two verses. Then in verses 17 and 18, we find these verses dealing with prostitution. Verse 17, There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel, or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So we see here that whoredom was not permitted among the daughters of Israel. The price of a dog speaks to money acquired by dishonorable means, probably referring to male prostitution. Sodomy, by the way, was absolutely forbidden in Israel. In verses 19 to 25, we have some interesting laws as well. Verse 19, You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food on anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So Hebrew bankers, well, no, it's tough to make an income without interest. However, one could lend to non-Hebrews and charge interest. And another law, don't promise it, or in other words, make a vow, if you can't keep it. We see that in verses 21 through 23. We find these vows dealt with in detail in Leviticus chapter 27 and Numbers chapter 30. And how about those poor people? The law instructs them here to eat what you want out of the vineyard, but don't you dare carry any of it away in anything but your stomach. And regarding the grain field, only take what you can pluck by hand. Incidentally, the Pharisees accused the disciples of Jesus of breaking the law when they gathered grain on the Sabbath day for personal consumption. That's found in Matthew 12, Mark 2, and Luke 6. They accused them of reaping the grain on the Sabbath day. We see from this passage of Scripture that doing so in the field itself was simply feeding oneself, and it wasn't categorized as reaping. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.